0: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science through the experiences of the people in these fields. We've talked a lot about how our work is important for patient care, but what happens if one day you find yourself as the patient? Could you use that experience to be even more helpful to the patients? My guest today is pathologist assistant Lori Marini. We're going to talk about her career as a pathologist assistant and then we'll talk about how she beat cancer and use that experience to help even more patients through coaching, a podcast, and even a book. All right, here's Lori Marini. Since we're both pathologist assistants, let's go back to the beginning. And I want to know, how did you discover the pathologist assistant profession?
1: Honestly, it fell in my lap. I, was, um, I had just graduated with my undergrad. I had taken a year off to get some experience working in a lab. And, um, I was a biopsy tech and it just, I had worked there for almost a year. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was pre-med in undergrad and I was like, you know what? I don't want that lifestyle of just being married to work. So mm-hmm. I decided not to pursue that Avenue. And, you know, I started off in cytogenetics. I moved over to histology. They taught me how to gross biopsies. And one day I, I said out loud, cause I, I had like trays of prostate biopsies. I'm like, Oh god, Ugh, I just want like a leg or something. Like, and I had no idea what that meant at the time, right? But as I said it, somebody walked past me and was like, What did you say? And I was like, I thought I was gonna get in trouble, honestly. And I was like, you know, I looked at her and she's like, You have your undergrad, right? And I'm like, Yeah. She's like, Oh my God, I have the perfect program for you. And I got linked up with Leo Kelly from Quinnipiac. and um oh, sure. It just so happened he had somebody drop out of his program. So I was, you know, I lived in Connecticut is where I was born and raised. And so within one month, I was literally starting the program. And at the time, I didn't realize what a gift that was.
0: You know, know, that's that's interesting because I, you know, I'm on the job trained, but I was a grossing biopsy histotech. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So it was sort of similar. And you mentioned the leg thing. And that was funny because that was one of the that was the first like bigger specimen that I learned how to do because the PA I was working with at the time. And Sandra, if you're listening, I'm talking to you. She showed me how to do it because she didn't want to.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. None of us want to do them anymore. Right. Like unless it's it's like osteosarcoma or something, but. At the time, I don't know why that's what came out of my mouth, right, because I definitely don't want to do them now. But it was just one of those things that I, I honestly felt like it was, it just fell into my lap. I had no idea about it before that moment. All
0: right. So then you're going along in the program at Quinnipiac. Now, did you know, like, you know, throughout the whole program, was it like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do? Like, was there ever any doubt?
1: Um, yes. (laughs) Okay. Funny, funny you should ask. So the program itself, I thought was fascinating. I love the material. Like I'm an, I'm a nerd, right? Like I just, I know it and I, I will forever continue to educate myself and I love the sciences. So the program itself was amazing, but it was my first rotation out of school. They had put me in a perinatal rotation, perinatal and autopsy. And at the time I was, for a good, you know, eight hour shift, I was processing POCs, products of conceptions. And the where I was situated, they went up to 24 weeks. So ossification occurred and they were fragmented. And I was like, what did I just get into? Like, this is terrible, right? Like, because that's all I was doing all day long. Um, and, and then I was doing autopsies on top of it. So I was like, what? Like, that was the only doubt that I had when I first started my rotations was I'm like, what did I just get into? Is it always like this? Is this what this is about? Right? Like, what about all the other stuff that we learned? But besides that, after after that rotation, that really prepared me, right? Like, I didn't, again, I didn't see the gift that I was getting at that time. Sure. Um, after that, I just, I fell in love with the profession for sure.
2: hmm
0: yeah, I imagine that that kind of situation has got to be a bit um emotionally draining after after a while.
1: And plus too, you're new, right? So you don't really know the the lay of the land, right? Like so as a as a as a first rotation, it was really difficult, I have to say.
0: Yeah, I believe it. Okay. Now, you've been a PA for uh, it's over 20 years now, right?
1: Yeah, do you believe it? I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. <that's crazy. laughs> don't make me that old. Don't make me that old. <laughs>
0: I'm sure I'm older. All right. So then, you know, throughout those 20 years, what have been some of the biggest changes you've seen in our profession?
1: You know, that's a great question. The first thing is our relationship with the residents and the attendings. Um, I think that because they have shifted as to what the residents are responsible for, um, what their workday looks like, I think it's benefited the PAs because it's allowed us to take on more. You know, I've had jobs that I began where they wouldn't let me do much. I was lucky I was doing a gallbladder and like I had to teach them like what it meant to have a PA on staff because they didn't understand what that meant. And now I feel that the pendulum has swung completely opposite where if there's an important case, they're going to have the PAs do that. And I and I love that because it speaks to us as a professional and that we do have the expertise to really ensure that patient care is um, maintained at all times. And then the second thing that I really absolutely love that's evolved, um, you know, ERPR HER2 was just coming out. I don't even think it was a thing when we were in school. And now <laughs> that's like the thing, right? Immunohistochemistry, right. genomics. I mean, that's, that world has exploded. And for those of us who've been in the field for a while, we definitely had to learn it quick. Right, because it's not something that we were taught otherwise. So, I I love seeing those advances like that because they really do make a great impact on patient care.
0: You're right; that area has exploded, and it it keeps expanding like exponentially.
1: Yeah, we as PAS we have to keep up with it because the data changes daily. I was very blessed to work in that field. Um, I helped set up a center for precision medicine. And that's what I was supporting them with is like, how do you facilitate tissue collection, right? Like that's what I did for them is I put in place, how how much tissue do you need? How are you going to get it? And then what are you going to do with it after you get it? And so it was a really great learning experience for me. It allowed me to solidify my confidence that I knew what I was doing, right? Once the data started rolling in and, and, you know, selectively choosing samples to go for genomics and then seeing that the report came back as, you know, it definitely being tumor and being able, and it was viable tissue. Like it really was something that made me step back and be like, you know what, we were really well-trained. We really were like as PAs, whether you're on the job trained or educationally trained, I really feel that the environment that we put ourselves in supports us as professionals.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, I wanted to ask you about that your work in the precision medicine area. How did that happen? How did you get involved with that?
1: Oh, that's another thing where it was just, you know, the universe, I feel, puts you exactly where you need to be at the right time. And I had some colleagues that knew that I had a histology background, that I also, you know, worked as a PA, that I was used to being in academics. That was really my entire profession was academics. So, um when the opportunity came up, they um asked me if I would support the cause and it was one of those things that i I actually said no three times <laughs> terrible i just really
0: couldn't. why why was that
1: i love- I-, I was excited about the opportunity, but i had such i was so established in my current position and like in my in my life, I didn't want to make the leap you know like I didn't see the value at the time of why should I leave you know i was I was managing four different laboratories. I was living on the beach. I'm like, why would I leave this? Like, This doesn't make sense. Like, I feel like I've achieved everything I needed to achieve. Like, why would I disrupt my life? But the universe kept bringing it back to me that I'm like, I literally said out loud, universe, I don't know why you're bringing me back there, right? Because I had worked at a sister hospital. And I'm like, but I'm just going to go and I'm going to make it happen. And I did. And it was one of the best experiences I've ever had as a PA.
0: What was your role with that? Did, or actually, first, did you have any sort of like direct patient? Yes. Experience through that role.
1: I did. So it, it's a very unique position that I ended up that I was hired into. However, I think because of who I am as a PA and the experience that I brought, I think I evolved the position. So what ended up happening was I was the key person for tissue collection. So I would go into interventional radiology. I would go into the ORs just like we do for frozen sections, but at the time of sampling, right? Like at the time of surgery or, or them taking the biopsies, I would help facilitate which ones were sent to diagnostics, which ones were sent for genomics, which ones were sent for single ray, you know, single cell analysis. And so in real time, I would do that. And I would be there with the patient and they would be asking me all these questions of like, what does this mean for me? What does this mean about my care? And I really started developing relationships with patients because a lot of times what would happen is the patient would return. Whenever they would get a new metastasis, they would return and and get a second sample or third sample taken. So it was the first time where I really was able to have that one-on-one interaction with patients and have them see that they have allies that are there to support them. So it was really rewarding.
0: Yeah, I, I can imagine, and a lot of us, you know, as PAs, we don't get that direct patient contact very often, if if at all.
1: Yeah, and and the thing is, is if as PAs, if we do morph into that realm, right, where we are, you know, working with patients more closely, we really need to make sure that we're very sensitive to them, right? A lot of times we are like we're kind of detached, right? Because we don't see them every day. So when we get a sample, we're like, oh my God, look how amazing that tumor is, right? Like how many times have we said that? Like, look at how it's growing. Look at how it is. That's so cool, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you're a patient, you're you're fighting for your life. You're not thinking that. So we need to be mindful of keeping it professional and not letting them see like, oh, look how neat that is, right? Like we all love the human body and, and what happens to it. And that's why we became PAs, but we also need to be mindful of the fact of sensitive, I should say, of the fact that patients are really going through a tough time.
0: That's true. I often think about that. Like the specimens that are the most interesting for us are the worst the you know, you know, for, yeah, for, for the patient. Yeah. So it, you know, it, it's very, like you said, it's very easy to forget that part of it that there is a person attached to to the, the yeah. specimen that you're looking at yeah now kind of along those lines and i know you've told this story many times in, in many places a few other podcasts and other areas like that but for the listeners that don't know let's talk about your story your your battle with breast cancer
1: oh yeah so i do have firsthand knowledge of what it means to be a pa and then i have firsthand knowledge of what it means to be Terrified when you find yeah. out that you have cancer. And so for me, it happened when I went for my baseline mammogram. I it wasn't something I have no family history. I'm not a gene carrier. I did self exams. I worked out. I ate right. You know, like I never thought that it would be me. Right. And so I had gone for my follow up. Uh, you know, my primary care physician. I went to my appointment. She gave me a self-exam, didn't feel anything. And at the time I was 41. So I went in there and I was like, I'm so sorry. I never went for my baseline at 40. Like, I'm good. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm going to go. I promise. Right. And she says to me, she's like, Laura, you're good. They just changed the guidelines to 45. You just bought yourself another four years. Now in the profession that we work, when we see what people deal with every day, I kind of sat there and I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. But I let it go. And I, I just went along my way. I was really busy at work. So life takes over as usual. And then I woke up to a dream. I woke up to a dream where I was riddled with cancer and it scared me. So I called up my bestie. I'm like, can you please hold me accountable? Make sure I go and get my mammogram. And in hindsight now, I don't know why a mammogram is what came to mind, right? Like it could have been anything really, but it's what I was called toward. And so I happened to call up the mammogram, you know, the imaging, diagnostic imaging. I scheduled an appointment for the very next day, which we know never happens. Right. And I went there and I got my baseline done and I didn't think anything of it when they called me the following day and they're like, can you, you know, come back? And I knew I had fibrocystic disease. I knew I had dense breasts for me going and getting an ultrasound was, was not anything that I thought was scary, right? Like we see that every day with our imaging that we, we handle for patients. Mm -hmm. So when I went there and they, they did a whole bunch of other tests, like I didn't think anything of it until I was on the patient table with the big blue light above me right (laughs) and we always wonder why the rooms are set up that way but they were with ultrasound in my axilla and they were on image 65 and they were measuring my lymph nodes oh and i just looked right because i was kind of like you know you're kind of lost in your thoughts and then i looked and i saw her measuring my nodes and i was like this isn't good And nobody had told me at the time what the findings were. But I remember looking at that blue light above me and saying, okay, so you're going to go through this. You know this. And then when you get done with this, what do you want to do with your life? So I literally like was writing my will and like what my life would be like for the next part of my life. And it was one of those things that it was a defining moment for me where I was like, Oh, now I get why that light, you know, why that colorful light is there right? It gives the patient something to look at and to think about while they're getting poked and prodded. And it was one of those things that even after, so the, the text, the ultrasound text can't tell you anything, right? Like I asked a couple of questions, but they didn't say anything, but I knew, but I really needed to hear the words, you have cancer. And nobody was saying it to me, right? So, The, the radiologist came in and was like, okay, well, we're going to need to schedule you for a biopsy. And I looked at her and I was like, why are you scheduling me for a biopsy? Even though I knew. And she hesitated, like she didn't want to be the person to tell me. And it was one of those things of she's like, well, you have, you know, you have a mass. And I was like, okay. And then so, and that's all I needed to hear, but it took a while before it took until my pathology report for me to recognize I had four lesions on my left side. And one, I know. Right. And I had self exams, right. And one of them was greater than two centimeters. So at the time of my biopsy, when, when I was such a jerk and you guys will, will really appreciate this. But when I went to go for my biopsies, it's a, it's a teaching hospital. So the, you know, (laughs) the radiologist comes in and I says to her, I'm like, look, I don't want, I don't want a first year, a second year, anybody, but a fellow or an attending touching me. I do not want extra passes done. And can you just please make this happen fast? Right. Cause I was terrified. And she looked at me, she's like, well, Lori, we are a teaching hospital. And I said to her, I'm like, I recognize that. And I've worked in teaching hospitals for over 20 years. And I know my right is to say that I, I can limit what staff actually performs procedures on me. And she just kind of looked at me and I swear she must've been like, let's get this woman out of here now. (laughs) Like, (laughs) let's just hurry up and go. And it was really one of those things. So when they had taken my biopsies, I asked to look at them and they looked at me like I was kind of crazy. Like
0: the actual tissue you wanted to look at?
1: I did, because it's what okay. I did all day was I I looked at samples all day to identify which ones had the most tumor, right? And as PAs, we can oh, yeah. do that. We know what it looks like. So when I looked at my own biopsy cores, I was like, okay, I definitely have cancer. Like I saw the, you know, that gray, white, firm areas within the fiber fatty tissue. I'm like, okay, this is like, this is really going to happen. And I didn't even need to wait for my path report before I was like, you know, down the road of how I was going to handle what I was about to go through.
0: Now, I was going to ask you with, you know, that your, your knowledge and your job experience as a PA and then, you know, and now being a patient, like did the knowledge that you have make this more, more or less difficult for you, you know, having that clinical background and it sounds like it might've made it more complicated because you were sort of thinking on both sides of it right away. Is that, is that right?
1: Oh, absolutely. So I'm sure a lot of people can relate when I say, you know, we're the go-to people when people, other people in our lives are dealing with something health-wise, like they all come to us and they're like, what does this mean? And it's like, when you have the opportunity to share the information with somebody, you know, I know I do it and I'm sure others do it too. You kind of gauge how much they want to know, right? You know what to say to them and then what to not say to them based on their personalities Based on how they're handling the situation that you're, you know, the information that you're given, so we're able to filter for certain people based on how much they want to know, right? Some people they're like, give it all to me. I want to know the good and the bad and like all of it. Right. And some people shut down when you do that, right? And so for me, I couldn't do that for myself, right? I just spent the last twenty years, or at least the last year and a half, specifically in this point of my life where I was working with advanced metastatic patients that were like at the end of their life and they were getting biopsies as their final chance to maybe getting treatment that might help them live a couple more months. Right. And so for me, I just sat there and I'm like, that could be me. I knew the worst case scenario and there was no way that I was not going to see that for myself. So it made it really hard. But then if you flip the coin, what made it really great is that I knew the worst case scenario. I knew the treatments. I knew the language. I knew everything about what I was about to go through, at least logistically, right? I had a a sense of what it was. So I was able to get into action really fast, right? Like when my first phone call just happened to be for my boss at the time, who just happened to be a world-renowned breast oncologist. And so I, I called him up and I was like, I have a problem. And he's like, Lori, he's like, it may be nothing. And I'm like, I saw the biopsies. Like, I know it's something I just need to let you know. I need help. And literally after that conversation, he set me up with my surgeon, you know, my oncologist. He just he was such a gem. Like, I will forever be grateful to him that within you know, two and a half weeks, I was in surgery. I had met with my oncologist. I met with my, you know, I decided to do reconstruction. So I met with my plastics. And when I met with the surgeon and the oncologist, you know, I said to them, I said, look, I'm going for a bilateral mastectomy. And they're like, Lori, the biopsies aren't even back yet. Like, we don't even know what we're dealing with. And I said to them, I said, regardless of what the biopsies say, I always said, that if I was ever in this position, this is what I was going to do. Like, this is what I want to do. And they're like, you're being too aggressive. I'm like, I'm telling you right now, this is what I want for my care. And it just so happened when the biopsies came back, I was a stage two introductal carcinoma with DCIS. So standard of care, as we know, is a a bilateral mastectomy. Um, And even if they tried to be like, let's just do one side and watch the other, I would never have done that because, you know, we know, we see it every day of how quickly that other side can turn. Like once, once you get malignancy on one side, the probability of you getting on the opposite side increases so much that I'm like, I'm not going to live my life in fear like that. Like I'm not doing it. And so within two and a half weeks, I, I was in surgery. So.
0: Wow. It, that's, that's very quick.
1: Yeah, it, it, my brain didn't have time to catch up to what was happening to my body. It took me a long, the, the emotional side of it took me about two and a half years to handle, like, and I still deal with it every day, but the physical part is the easy part. It's the more, the emotional part that is really problematic for people.
0: Thank you. I appreciate you telling that story. We'll get back to our interview with Lori Marini in just a minute. But first, I want to introduce you to another podcast.
3: Welcome to Direct Shift Stories. We are an award-winning and innovative company using technology to connect clinicians directly to employers. We are automating the entire search, credentialing, and placement process. And through this podcast, we highlight the future of healthcare hiring each and every week. We have a health professional from the healthcare space to learn about their journey and experiences, so that together we can become the next generation of healthcare leaders. Healthcare hiring is made fast and easy with the power of technology. Direct Shifts makes it simple to find temporary or permanent hires without external staffing agencies or recruiters. On our platform you may list as many jobs as you want and we'll connect you with high quality, pre-vetted candidates with verified credentials and backgrounds, this online platform is used to make it more efficient, so that we can be more convenient. We're more transparent and cost effective through both physicians and hospitals. Let's explore and find out how we can increase the level of health and happiness throughout our world. So we encourage you join this journey with us and together we can create a better future of healthcare through these conversations and stories.
0: LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now, back to Lori Marini on the People of Pathology podcast. Now I wonder because you're a you're a coach now, and Mm -hmm. you coach cancer warriors, people that are recovering from cancer surgery, and I think that your experience as a PA, and then now your experience as a patient, that puts you in a unique situation, because you know, like we said earlier, now you you know both sides of what happens, and is that that realization? I guess did that lead you to coaching.
1: Yeah, so I'll never forget the moment where I recognized I I, I was going for a follow-up appointment in the okay. hospital that I worked at, you know, so I knew the the lay of the land, I knew where to park, I knew, you know, where the cafeteria was, and I was standing in the waiting for the elevator and I just recognized that I was completely overwhelmed. And it really surprised me right? Because we know the language, we know the process, like, you know what to expect. And for me to feel overwhelmed when I, like, I know the hospital, like the back of my hand really made me surprised. And it, and then the second thought, the follow-up thought was, if I feel this way, how does anybody else get through this? right? Like I was the person that would always find the lost people and be like, do you need directions? And I would like support them with finding them where they needed to go. And it's one of those things that like, once you're on the reverse side, I'm like, I can't even imagine how they feel. So it was one of those things that I was really guided to be a support to people as they go through this journey. And so for me, um, you know, because of my knowledge base, I do support them with reading their pathology reports, you know, what questions to ask uh, your oncologists, your surgeons, right? Like I set them up for success with their appointments, but I shy away from treatments. Like I'm not going to tell you what treatment to have or anything like that. So I really support patients when they are post-treatment and now want to get back to living a life that they love because it is, like I said, once. Once your initial physical treatment happens, unless you are a demand for further therapy or um, emotional support, that all goes away, right? Your social worker isn't there anymore. The therapist they put you in there isn't there anymore. And you're left on, you're left alone. And I found that the emotional baggage of what you just went through really Lives with you for, you don't really accept everything that's going on for at least a good two years. And so that's where I really try to help people is, you know, between them finishing their treatments beyond. So that way they could understand that, you know, living in fear of reoccurrence doesn't need to be your everyday. Like you can, you know, have cancer or battled cancer or even have, you know, Metastatic disease, but you can still live a fulfilled life and keep moving forward. You know, when you're diagnosed, you face your mortality, and it really strips you of the joy that you have in life, because you're now in this fear of, am I going to make it tomorrow? And so that's what I really support people on. So I do the medical side for them. I do support them with their path reports. And what does it mean to have a specific kind of cancer and like what they can expect their doctors to kind of tell them. But where I truly am passionate about is like just supporting them and getting back to living. You know, it's like I like I tell them, I'm like, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. So why are you fearful of your cancer coming back in two or three months? Like, live. Just live. You know, we don't, I I say it all the time where I'm like, I don't want anybody to be in this tribe of mine, right? This cancer warrior tribe is what I call it. And um, But if you're here and, and you find yourself here, there are people that are here to support you. And we don't want you to know what it feels like, but it's a terrible feeling. And we need to empower you to really just be in a good spot.
0: So then how do you get connected with the the patients that then become your, your coaching clients? How does that work?
1: So I get a lot of referrals. People know me as a PA or they know me as a coach. So I'm a life and wellness coach. I'm also going to be a certified cancer coach as well. But I have a website that they go to, you know, laurymarini.com. I kept it simple on my website. It talks about all the, everything that I provide. And I also have a podcast. So my Mm -hmm. podcast, it's on all major platforms and people find me through my podcast. And I was, I was surprised because it's not why I set up the podcast, but I'm really grateful that it's an avenue for people to find me.
0: Uh, So that's called conversations with courageous cancer warriors. Mm Mm-hmm. So when did you start the podcast? Like, what was the inspiration for doing that?
1: You know, I recognize that people just want to be heard. And I recognize that people, you know, as community, as humans, I should say, we live better when we live in community. So having someone share something that might be similar to what you're going through, has you feel accepted, has you feel heard and understood. And that's part of the healing process. So I wanted to give warriors an opportunity to really just share their story. But it's not just cancer warriors. I also have um, healthcare professionals come in. I have caregivers. I have family members. Anybody who just wants to share what their experience was to benefit other people that might be going through something similar, I just allow them to have that avenue to do that.
0: Some of these then are clients of yours or...
1: Some of them are are clients or some of them have become really great friends. And then I've also had, you know, naturopaths on, I've had, you know, physicians, I've had physician assistants, right. Um, I had a physician assistant who's a physician assistant, but she also was diagnosed with rectal cancer really, really young. Um, So it's, it it gives us an insight to what other people are dealing with.
0: And I imagine you you said you've, met some of your clients through the podcast. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get feedback from people that are like, you know, I was just completely lost and didn't know what to do. And then I found this and that, you know, like you gave me some direction. Does that happen?
1: It does actually. And it, it you know, I'm just me and I'm just sharing my my heart with everyone and in the hopes that people are moved and they're changed and they're they're a little bit uplifted. So when that happens, it's really rewarding because it's something I never expected to come from this.
0: These days, are you full-time coaching or do you still work as a PA or, or is it split? How does that how does that go?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I, I will be very honest, being in the environment, the hospital environment for me as I was going through my own treatment and healing was really difficult because I was on the front lines with metastatic patients and I really Felt that for me to be able to heal myself, I, I mean, I believe in manifesting too, right? And so I'm like, if I am surrounded by this all the time, I'm not going to be able to heal myself because I'm going to just be, mani- I, I was fearful that I would manifest that as my future. So I took a hiatus from actual hospital work and I created a position for myself in the biotech industry where I became their national trainer for clinical trials so it's oh, something okay. that, that I do now. I'm still a PA. I'm still active in the community. I I do provide services like per diem services for one, you know, maternity leaves and people on vacation. So I, I do that, but now I've morphed into the biotech industry where I am their pathology expert and I support them in how to retrieve tissue and get the best tissue for a uh, patient testing
0: you know i'm often looking at like different so, sort of off the beaten path areas that a someone in pathology or you know specifically a pa could could get into and this sounds like one of them do you think that's a that's a niche that that pas could could really fill
1: yeah i do it takes a certain personality right so if you're someone that does not want, like, talking to people, like, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I'm saying, like, if you are not a person, a people person, and that's why you got into pathology, then moving into the biotech realm might be difficult for you because you're, you're more with the sales team, right? You're more with the sales, marketing. Oh, okay. I was able to do both where I was working with the lab staff and, and supporting their procedures and practices. And ironically enough, I was training PhDs on how to, disassociate tissue and like how to use our instruments, the things like we don't ever really think about that we were taught to do, you know, uh, well, but most of the time it was for me being the face of the company at the hospitals and like, you know, working with clients and working with the sales team. So it's one of those things that I'm not going to say no. Right. But it, in my experience, it was more of a a forward facing position where you need to be interacting with a lot of other people. And I know a lot of times like people get into the lab because that's the last thing they want to do. So that's why I say it that way. I <laughs> see.
0: Okay. So it's a, it's a not for everyone, I guess is, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I don't mean that badly. So whoever's taking that badly, that's not how I mean it. I'm no, just saying no, like, of course. you know, pathologists become pathologists because they don't want to deal with everyday, you know, patient. So right. I kind of mean it that way.
0: Yeah. Although there there seems like there is sort of a, a, a push these days for pathology and, and lab in general, just to kind of have more patient interaction. Yeah. Uh, like that would be a better thing. You know, it's something that, that you've you you done, uh, you know, for years now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the best example is cytology, um, yep. you know, them going and performing FNAs. So it's one of those things that, like, if you know you don't want to be near people and you don't want to see people suffer and you don't want to see people in a certain state, then you definitely shouldn't have that be part of your job. Right. Because you need to take care of your own soul, too. And, and if seeing patients day in and out that are suffering affects your soul and you can't manage it, then that's not something for you. And that's what, you know, working in the biotech fields, some of them. Clinical trials, like you're still working with metastatic patients, so it's it's hard. It's hard, and that's why I say it that it's not for everyone.
0: Did you ever have to like explain, you know, what your job was and what your experience was? Like, you, people, would, you'd go, you, you know, I'm a pathologist assistant, and they would say, "What is mm-hmm.
1: that?" Yeah, every day. <laughs> okay. Every time. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's the thing. Like, you know, we also as professionals need to craft how we describe what we do. Because when we talk to each other, we speak very freely, right? Like, oh, that's so cool or what, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but to the general public, they kind of are like, what are you talking about? You know, I, it, and I'm, I'm often reminded because what we think is cool, other people are like, that's really gross. And it's like my boyfriend, oh, sure. he, my boyfriend cannot look at the sight of blood or vomit or anything like that, right? Like he just does not want anything to do with that. And so I rem- I, it's a reminder for me, whenever something like that comes up, that I'm like, not everybody is like us. Not everybody can tolerate what we tolerate.
0: Yeah, that's very true. I want to ask you what what sort of future projects you have. I think I saw something about, about a book that's in the works.
1: Yeah. So I co-authored a book with other amazing women, and it's called Women Who Boss Up in um, Healthcare and Wellness. And so the book is in pre-order. I'm really excited about it. Um, I have a bunch of speaking events that are coming up for that too, which I'm really, really excited about. And what I love is that even though it's about me and my cancer journey, I'm ensured that I talked about our profession because I'm very proud of it and I'm proud to be a PA And I'm excited that I've been able to shed a small little light as to who we are and the heroes that we are for patients. When people read it, I hope that you are proud of how I described us.
0: You said the the book is is pre-order?
1: Yep. It's available on my website as pre-order, um, where it's, you know, shipment was supposed to be in March, but with the world in the way that it is today, the publisher is a little bit behind. So we're hoping for mid April. Um, mm -hmm. and we're just really, really excited about it. I I think it, and it's just, it's an uplifting book of women overcoming adversity in their life.
0: All right. I will have links in the show notes then uh to your website where people can pre order the book to your podcast and uh you know everything else we talked about today. Lori, this has been really interesting. I like I said, I really appreciate you sharing your personal story and and your experiences. So uh, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. It was really an honor for me to be able to be here today. Thank you.
0: Great big thank you to Lori Marini. It was such an honor to have her come on the show and talk about her experience, so I really thank her for that. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Dr. Nicole Jackson.
2: What I have experienced in my brief career is that people do not view forensic pathologists as first responders. You could see this in COVID, you know, people think of emergency room physicians, which they are, nurses, but we are also first responders. Uh, You know, we're some of the first physicians and people to see what is killing us as a community, as a population, as a nation, you know, in real time. We don't have to wait for people to aggregate data to see there's a trend and increase in overdose deaths during the the COVID pandemic. You know, we are seeing this right now as it's happening, and I think people aren't recognizing that. And so, you know, prior to COVID, um, the medical examiner and coroner system in the U.S. You know, it was understaffed and it's overtaxed, right? So they're estimated to be approximately four to five hundred full-time, board-certified forensic pathologists to do the work of about. 11 to 1200 and this was before covid and we all know you know everything's gotten worse um and so there was a disinvestment in the system and so when covid hit um a lot of people were pressed you know across multiple disciplines but a lot of autopsies weren't performed on these covid related tests which i think is a real big missed opportunity because a lot of what we know from influenza that came from autopsy series, you know, and we don't, we're not having that for COVID because offices weren't able to do that for a multitude of reasons, you know, whether that's as a safety precaution um, or just being in, you know, overwhelmed with cases, but that's a lot of lost information that we really need as we do not understand this virus fully and what it's what's going on.
0: You can hear more from Dr. Jackson in episode number 25. You know, Lori's story is very inspiring and it really drives home the point that We have to remember there's a patient behind every specimen, behind every sample. And even though most likely we'll never meet them, what we are doing is important and it's very helpful to them. I will have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, including to Lori's website and to her podcast. And on a lighter note, this coming Wednesday, April 14th, is Pathologist Assistant Day, so it seemed fitting to have a pathologist assistant as the guest on the show this week. You can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode and you know someone who might get something out of it, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well being and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People at Pathology podcast.